everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. I got my first vaccine shot a few weeks ago and I'm hoping to get my second one very soon. I have also been traveling quite a bit through parts of southern China and trying to see some art and meet some art people. It's been a relatively busy past few weeks. In other news, my students just had their senior year exhibition and I'm proud to see their work hanging. They've been working on it all year and it brings back lots of memories of my time in undergrad. I also have one more week of school and then a month of meetings before I head to Shanghai. Time is just moving really fast. Anyway, for today, I've got Dan Wong, an artist, writer, and organizer, Chinese Midwestern by birth, and currently living in Southern California. Dan's work has been shown in several solo exhibitions and scores of group shows. His texts have been published in books, journals, web scenes, exhibition catalogs, as commissioned art projects, and in a range of artists' publications. As a cultural organizer, Dan has also worked in several collaborative configurations, having contributed to projects and productions under the names Compass, Madison Mutual Drift, and Red 76. In addition, he was one of eight founding key holders of the Chicago experimental cultural space, Mess Hall. I caught up with Dan recently and was excited to learn more about his family background in growing up as a Chinese-American in the Midwest. We chatted about jajangmyeon, learning Chinese, Asian complacency, and so much more. I really hope to catch up with Dan in the future for round two, but in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. You know, I've been an independent artist for most of my career. As our last couple of relocations have dictated, it's it's been me trailing my wife and her job. Uh-huh. So she had a job opportunity here. Yeah. And uh, we were looking, we were all looking for a change of scenery. So here we are. People now often more frequently say unceded Tongva land, indigenous peoples who were here and are here. Mm-hmm. And uh, not that far from Koreatown, too. So yeah. that's where yeah. I am. Uh, well, I hope you, you know, you're safe. I know a lot of crazy things has been happening in LA, not just with, you know, the virus, but also the fires. And yeah, every time I turn on news, it seems like something really crazy is happening. And it makes me, I initially had wanted to move back to LA. Now I'm not so sure, but yeah, I guess I'm curious if we could quickly, you know, talk a little bit about your origin story, where you grew up. I think your background is really interesting and the path that you kind of took to where you are to today. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear more about your experiences in the Midwest. Well, my origin story, I can, I can tell it this way, which is that my parents were part of the, you know, some people would call it the 65 generation. My dad arrived in 61. So they were on the leading edge of that Taiwan-educated post-war wave of Chinese immigrants. And 
you know, I ended up growing up in Michigan because my dad got a job there from Mm -hmm. what was at that time in his field, like considered like kind of like, you know, like a prestigious job. It was uh, with Dow Chemical. Okay. So one of the big chemical industry. And um, yeah, so we ended up there and this is a good thing to do on Zoom. This is, you know, is what we do in Michigan, right? You go like that. (laughs) I grew up like right around there. Okay. So that's the mitten of Michigan, uh, you know, not the hand, the mitten. <laughs> and uh, it was, that's Saginaw Bay. So I grew up in a town called Saginaw. And Saginaw, I mean, there's various kind of interesting tidbits about it. But one of the things about it that has sort of obsessed me as an adult is that it was um, at the northern end of this uh, interstate corridor, Interstate 75, Uh which went from up north all the way through, down through this uh, series of industrial cities. Uh, And it was Saginaw and then Flint, which a lot of people have heard about, Uh and then Detroit uh, and the Detroit suburbs. And then south of there, you go further to Toledo. It was part of the geographical distribution of the auto industry. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up as a kid in the 1970s, yeah. the American autos industry was, was kind of like at the beginning of its restructuring. Uh-huh. And my childhood memories of that time were uh, of a very affluent part of the country. You know, like our neighbors, all our neighbors who people who work for GM. You know, they had like cabins up north or they'd mm-hmm. go on ski vacations. And it was, uh, you know, kind of like this strong American middle class kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And as I grew up, you know, going from a kid to an adolescent teenager, you know, I kind of watched that. I watched that start to fray out and mm. people's fathers would get laid off. People would move to the Sunbelt states, you know, move out west, move out here. So, yeah, it was an interesting place to grow up in that way, to kind of like actually sort of kind of witness as a child uh, this deindustrialization. Yeah. My dad worked for for Dow Chemical, which was headquartered in a nearby smaller city called Midland. And my mother ran a restaurant and my parents Mm -hmm. opened a restaurant. So, yeah. So growing up in Michigan was a pretty interesting place to, to grow up, I think. You know, there weren't that many Chinese people around. And uh, my, my parents had a fairly public facing business. Yeah. I grew up there. Like that was where I spent a lot of my time in the restaurant. And to answer your question, your, your answer, answer your question fully about what kind of food it was. Uh, it was, I mean, I understood it as Northern food, Northern, Northern, you know, kind of like the food that I sort of knew from my grandma and, yeah, you know, yeah. my, my auntie's making. Yeah. But as I got older, I, I realized, uh, I started to understand that it was specifically Chinese Korean food, which uh, like in LA, most of the Chinese restaurants in Koreatown, yeah. they offer Chinese Korean dishes. So there's like maybe six, six or eight specialties that are particular to that diasporic population. <laughs> I mean, there's a few well-known ones. Uh, like standard, like if you ask Korean people, they would they would know these. Yeah, like, yeah. So jambong, which is just jambong. like a seafood seafood noodles, and uh, gongpengji, right? Chicken uh-huh. wings. Yeah. Spicy chicken wings, fried. Yeah. Extremely popular now, right? Yeah. Kind of just known as Korean fried chicken. Yeah. And then um, the one that's really is sort of like the big comfort food for Korean people is zajangmyeon. Zajangmyeon. Yeah. Zajangmyeon of the Hangwa Huachao. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's your Chinese, by the it's, way? It's, it's still improving. Still, still needs a lot of work. 
Mine too. Mine too. Hua <laughs> Chinese of Korea. And back in the home province, Anong province, which is where my family's from, and in Beijing, you can get, but it kind of an inferior yeah. version. And, okay. and <laughs> it's funny because I, I went to, uh, it was in 2009, or I think I went to uh, Korea for very, just, it was like a 24 hour trip, but yeah. I went to, I went to Yinchan. Uh-huh. And this this goes along with the origin story. It's because in Incheon, which is like the, you know, it's like Seoul and Incheon is sort of like a twin city type thing. Like, you know, yeah. like you got. Yeah. It's where the airplanes fly. I lived in Korea for two years. So. Oh, OK. 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 Yeah, OK. Yeah. So you, you probably you maybe know this. Um, so the Chinatown in Incheon, down by the port, uh-huh. uh, the old Chinatown, that's where my parents grew up. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So we're part of that. Uh, okay. but, but you go there today and they they have a monument to Zhajiangmian. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like this is where it was perfected, you know. <laughs> I still yeah. haven't tried Chinese Zhajiangmian. I haven't uh but yeah, I I grew I grew to love Zhajiangmian when I was in Korea. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um yeah. So okay, so then your your parents served that in Midwest and did they market it as Chinese food or Korean food? Uh, that was, they had a little Korean only menu and, uh, oh, okay. as these pre-internet things happen, like the word gets around and all the Korean people would go there to eat uh. and which was kind of even socially was sort of like a comfort zone for my parents. Yeah. Um, cause my family's always had this affinity with, you know, Korean culture. Uh, but then other things like, you know, my dad, like sort of you know, quote, invented this dish. He didn't, he didn't, he, he all he did was just kind of <laughs> and then give it a good name. Yeah. Uh, and, it be, and it became one of the most popular dishes yeah, and yeah. it was, and he called it, or we called it palace beef. Palace and beef. Okay. Palace beef. And yeah. what it, basically what it was, was bulgogi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, and, but it's just like, okay, in a Chinese context, you have it in there with all these other dishes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah but yeah. like all the other Chinese restaurants in town didn't have it. Right, right, you know? right, 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 right. But, you know, but like, you know, people didn't know enough uh, about Korean cuisine to actually recognize that. It's yeah, like, yeah. oh, actually, he's just ripping off something. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. So if you could, like, explain a little bit more about, I guess, the history of, you know, where your family is from. So, like, your family is of Chinese origin, but they temporarily lived in Korea for a bit, as I understand. Yes. So uh, the diasporic narrative goes like this. It's uh, my uh, grandfathers and my great grandfathers. Uh, so they were, my family was from the coast of uh, the northern coast of San province. Uh-huh. So the, the big city there is uh, Qingdao, like on the edge of the yep, peninsula. Mm-hmm. Famous for uh, beer. And, uh, no, yeah, exactly. Exactly. The German concession. That's why they yeah, have a beer there. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a few cities along the north. Uh, one of the big ones is Weihai. Another one is Yantai. Mm-hmm. And my family was from villages that were close to there. Uh-huh. So, and those areas have had a century of interchange with Korea. So it was just across mm-hmm. straight the Yellow Sea or, or whatever. Yeah. 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 So uh, there, there's a lot of Korean people in that area of China. So during the, in, in the civil war or in, you know, my two grandfathers, both sides, they were business people. So they uh, already had dealings in Korea and, and both of my grandfathers could speak Korean. So they went there instead of Taiwan. And that was a whole sort of thing that I've been 
kind of through many years trying to piece together because my parents were very young at that time. So they're, they tell me stories, but they're not sure about dates and years. Uh, yeah. And I've had to kind of sort of approximate like kind of like the timelines and stuff and they're all very fuzzy, but they did start in Pyongyang. Okay. And then when war continued in Korea, then they moved to Yinchan. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, and that's where my parents kind of went through most of their grade schooling. And eventually the, the, they moved further all the way down to Busan. Okay. And from Busan, both of my parents were sent by their parents to boarding schools in Taiwan. Hmm, okay. And so they kind of, they went into the Taiwan context a little bit as outsiders and Unlike most of the parents of the people of my generation here in the U.S., they're not really, even though they were Taiwan educated and, and, you know, my mom and dad went to Taiwan universities, they never, even to this day, they never really identified with Taiwan. They they, they always had this sort of like outsider kind of comfort, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's carried over into me and and like growing up in the Midwest, it, it didn't really phase my parents, you know, like mm-hmm. they, 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 they were kind of accustomed to being the, you know, being in a very small minority wherever they yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like the family narrative. And growing up was art sort of always part of, you know, your activities and, and sort of intersected into your life. How did your parents sort of see art? Um, it took me a while to appreciate this, but yes. Um, yeah. They were not artists themselves, but, you know, they have, they had art hanging on the walls and there were a bunch of sort of, you know, paintings and woodcuts that I remember kind of, you know, fixating on or staring at as a, as a child. So I did have that something of an exposure. And then through a funny family network, there did arrive into our family life and in my kind of like, uh, I must have been like 11 or 12 when this happened. But after the Cultural Revolution, my family and probably others started to reconnect with people they knew in the mainland. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of these people was a person who had grown up right near my dad's family in uh-huh. Korea. Uh-huh. My dad knew him from when he was young. Uh-huh. And this person was an artist who went to Beijing to study. Wow. Okay. And got caught in the Civil War and in the revolution and never left. Uh-huh. And he actually became a fairly well-known artist. Hmm. Uh, and, and he became one of the things he became known for were some of the some of the iconic revolutionary period um, woodcuts. Ah. And so after the Cultural Revolution, so like in the late 70s, maybe 80 or 81, it was before I went to high school. This guy, his name was uh, Yang Xian Rong. My parents made contact with him, invited him. He By that time, he was a professor at the Central Academy. Okay. And they invited him to come to the U.S. And he came on like one of these six-month visas. And he came and he stayed with us in our house in, in Saginaw, Michigan. And you were 12. I was like, I was like 11 or yeah, 12. Yeah. And he stayed with us for about like three weeks or a month. Yeah. And he just painted uh-huh. and he, and he made artwork in our basement. Okay. And we still have a whole bunch of those paintings. Oh, wow. And 
he became my contact later on when I got out of college and I wanted to, to go to China and was kind of looking for a reason set me up with his younger sis- sister who was at the C- the Xi'an Art Academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went there for about eight or nine months and I studied with her, I studied folk, Chinese folk arts wow. with her. That's a crazy like coincidence, right? Since you also now do printmaking, you do a lot of wood blocks, totally. wood, wood cuts. And did you ever think about that sort of connection or I, or... I did. I did. Um, I think I did, you know, just seeing him at work for sure, yeah. for sure uh, made an impression. Uh, yeah. um, and then later on, once I, once I actually had that contact, I learned that not only was he on the faculty of the Central Academy, he was the head of their printmaking department and he was a teacher of Xu Bing. Oh, really? Yeah. And, <laughs> and a whole bunch of, of well-known, yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of artists that came out of the Central Academy of that like post-cultural revolution right, right, generation, right, right, he was right, their teacher. Right, right. So all, it was really, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Cause like then I, I, I made other connections through him. I don't know if you're familiar with the art historian and curator Wu Hong. Uh-uh, no, no. Uh-uh. Uh, but he's a career making cu- curator and a very, very significant kind of like conduit for yeah. contemporary Chinese art through yeah. to, you know, the rest of the world. And he was also one of Professor Yang's students. So Professor Young, you know, came, it was like, whoa, what, what yeah. is this? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've had a few, like, kind of like really just serendipitous, like deep network, like family level kinds of contacts like that through my life. It's, it's, it's been strange and extremely fortunate. Yeah. And did you grow up learning Chinese? I assume you had to speak Chinese when you were in Xi'an, right? I really did not make an, a concerted effort to improve my Chinese until I had come back from Xi'an, uh, okay. sadly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I did make an effort because I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what your experience has been. I'd be, I'm really. I, I grew up learning Cantonese and then my parents sent me to like Mandarin school every Saturday up until high school. Yeah. And okay. So, okay. So now, so now I'm like re, I have like some really shaky foundation, but it's, it's a foundation. And so I've been sort of building off that since I've been here and trying really hard to throw myself at learning it. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. Do it. I mean, Chinese language is so interesting. I mean, it's, it's pictorial. That's also what's so cool about it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always had this interest in China and this fascination, but I didn't, I didn't have an entry point into it because my language wasn't that good. Yeah. And uh, I did go to Chinese school like you, but not for very long. I think I stopped when I was like maybe in fifth grade or something okay. like that or sixth grade. And I went to college at a time when, you know, the college I went to, which was, uh, you know, academically reputable, they didn't even offer Chinese until I was like a junior or something. Yeah, like they had yeah. Japanese and Russian. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So I kind of was a little, you know, ahead of that wave, unfortunately. And when I went to Xi'an, I, I, I mean, my verbal communication definitely improved. But I definitely also regretted not really uh, concentrating on that yeah. while I was there. Yeah. But nonetheless, when I returned to the U.S., just in the course of processing that experience, because this was, I'll specify this, this was in 92, 93, and Sion was a complete backwater at that time. Mm-hmm. It was really like, you know, maybe like 
Pittsburgh or Chicago in like, you know, 1900 or something. It was like dirty, like really yeah. dirty. Yeah. Um, air, the air was really bad. Yeah, yeah. And uh, pretty unruly, like, you know, the streets were a little bit chaotic. And uh, I didn't know anything about the whole ancient history of Xi'an until I got there and started to get exposed to all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that experience... Like I, I, I spent the next few years really trying to unpack that experience, like yeah. reading, reading a lot about China and really like getting the outlines of like the whole, the history. And it was it's like such a long, whole, such a long history. It's like, it blows totally. my mind that you have that as a student, you have to learn like 2000 years of history. And then as an Americans, we complain about like 200 years. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. So uh, at some point in that that process, I did make a decision. I was like, well, you know, by that time I had completed my training as an artist and started a career. And I knew that I wanted to go back to China and I knew that interesting things were happening there in the art scenes. And I knew that I had to have better Chinese. So I hired, I started to work with tutors yeah, yeah. and I hired a, a series of tutors you know, native speaking Chinese people, they, they basically, they were all graduate students. It was a string of graduate students. <laughs> this is, in, this is while you in Columbus. This was in Chicago and uh, in Madison. Okay. Okay. Uh, so over about 10 years, I had a series of, uh, of tutors, uh, coaches, <laughs> language coaches. Yeah. Rotating grad students. <laughs> rotating, you know, they would get done with their dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and they were all like, amazing not just for they all became friends uh-huh. and they were all there was all there was a lot of mutual interest they were they were curious about me and they were really helpful in yeah. pointing me towards people they knew in china yeah, that yeah. i would be interested in yeah but my thing was like we would go to these sessions we'd, we'd get together in these sessions and you know i would bring something that i would want to learn how to talk about in okay. chinese yeah 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 and I would bring like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, you know, and like okay. and have to like try to explain like like what is what is a counterculture? What is a drug culture? <laughs> yeah, what is yeah. psychedelia? What is, you know, yeah, what yeah. is this kind of journalism? What yeah, is yeah. Uh, what was going on in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s? Like try like having to practice. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. So uh, that's still an ongoing adventure. But um it all kind of goes back to that time I was in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so during this time, how was your art developing? Like, what were you thinking about? What was the decision like to go back to get an MFA? That's always like a big decision because I feel like you get your, your undergraduate degree, you don't really know what art is. And then there's sort of like you're introduced to the real world and then you have to make this decision to like go back to school for this thing that you're still trying to figure out, right? Yeah, I, I think in my case, it was... I felt like I didn't have as much of a choice because I, I, I actually did not study art as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. I did. I took a lot of art classes, but the, the decision to become uh, more serious about it uh, came after college. Mm -hmm. And that was actually one of the reasons I, I went to China was like, oh, well, you know, I didn't, I actually haven't focused on art ever. Uh, in my life, even though I've made art sort of ever since I was a kid and all through yeah, high school yeah. and in college, let me give it a try. Let me, let me really, you know, dedicate myself to learning art. 
and I'll do it through this. I'll do it through this family network that, you know, can set, can help set me up in China. Yeah. Yeah. And it was after that, that I was like, okay, I definitely want to do this. And now I need to get into a graduate program so I can have two or three years to just focus, just focus, have the facilities, um, all of that. And that was, you know, I, I think this is probably true for most people, but I was a much better student as a grad student uh, yes. than I was as an undergrad. I, th- I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I went in, I, I went in with focus. I, I mean, I, I went in with a, a whole series of questions that I wanted yeah. to deal with. Uh-huh. all having to do with China, Chinese history, my place in it, my family's yeah. place in it, Asian American frames, just Asian history. Yeah. So I had a kind of like a motivation, motivating yeah. curiosities, motivating questions. You had a purpose. You knew what you're, you knew, you knew what to look for, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and then I dropped it all. So I, after grad school, I was like, okay, I'm going to leave all of that alone. And, you know, I'm going to resume my other interests, which are like, you know, kind of larger political critique, you know, eerie informed political Mm -hmm. critique, you know, Marxism meets Foucault, you know, Mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. Uh, That kind of stuff. So I I really kind of set aside the sort of culturally specific or identity based questions for some time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, w- I was curious about that. How did you, how was your interest in being an organizer, being into these sort of community building and politics? How did that sort of come about? Yeah, I mean, that that goes pretty early. That's, you know, kind of started in high school. My first big conflict with my parents was over uh, registering for the draft, which I refused okay. to do. And my parents at, at that time, I mean, my my mom has, uh, my mom died, uh, uh, in 2012, but my, my dad's still around and his politics have completely changed. He's very liberal now. Okay. Um, but at that time, my parents were, you could put them in the category of like, kind of like conservative immigrants, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. uh, patriotic immigrants. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. People who, whose gratitude to the United States was expressed through their conservative yeah, yeah. alignment. And they were shocked that I had this that I was taking this position about the draft and it turned into a big, big fight. Uh, and that was sort of the opening of a kind of political separation from my parents. What, what, what was the thing that caused you Their to feel about the way you felt in for the draft? This was, uh, I mean, at the time, the United States was flexing military muscle. Like there yeah, was, you yeah. know, there was an invasion of Grenada and, uh, you know, it was a kind of Reagan era, rearmament right, going right. on and reinvestment. But, but, in- but with, with your parents sort of conservative views, how did your views sort of, where did those views get shaped? I guess that's sort of what I'm curious about. Well, I had, I had, um, a kind of bohemian secondary school education. You know, I, my parents, because they went to boarding school, they sent me to boarding school. Uh, okay. And they sent me to boarding school at a time when, you know, like I'm a Gen X guy, right? You know, Gen X kid. And this is pretty common for people my age. I'm, you know, 52. And we benefited from having a lot of baby boomer kind of 60s vets yeah. teachers, you yeah. know, people who went through the counterculture of the 60s and early 70s 
and went into education as a, mm. as a livelihood. Mm-hmm. So many of the younger faculty if, at that time, uh, especially in a, in a place where like a, like a private school where there's more latitude on what to teach, mm-hmm. it attracted a lot of these kind of countercultural types. So I would say that in, in relation to the draft, it was very directly influenced by one teacher okay. um, who, uh, again, again, this is kind of like the Professor Young thing. Yeah, yeah. His, his name is David Watson, okay. and he was a Spanish teacher at our school. And years later, I put together, I didn't know this at the time, I realized that he was one of the main writers for this publication called The Fifth Estate, okay, which is a longtime Detroit countercultural um, newspaper. And it was one of the underground papers that survived the 60s and became a kind of like anti-authoritarian, hmm. sort of like almost like a theory kind of newspaper. It was, uh, there was continental influence. They, in the eighties, they would, they published like um, in serialized form, they published like uh, Raoul Vinayam's Revolution of Everyday Life. Mm-hmm. You know, that had an avant-garde kind of uh, edge to it. And uh, it became a kind so of- So he was your teacher. Well, he was a teacher at the school and he did like draft counseling for the, the senior boys. Uh. And uh, I did have him for like, kind of like a segment in an English class where he kind of came in and, and yeah, taught yeah. a segment. Yeah, and, yeah. He t- and he taught, he taught, he taught a segment on surrealism and we, and we read the under Breton uh, novel, uh, Nadja. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like this avant-garde, you know, there's like avant-garde stuff in high school. And, you know, this was, this was all, you know, got to remember, this is all pre-internet. Like this is yeah. all like you had to discover this shit on your own. Or be in- introduced to it. Yeah, exactly. Be introduced to it. And it's, so there was, there was a social aspect to it. Cause once you're yeah, introduced yeah. to it, it's like, who do you know, you know, or you meet other people who knew and you're like, well, how did you find out about this? You know, mm-hmm. so that, that whole, like, you know, back then, like people call it like, just like the alternative culture, you know? Yeah. 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 And it was just alternative just because you had to go looking for it or, you know, it came into your life in these weird ways. And that put me on the path of like starting to formulate, you know, political analyses and this stuff. And so in high school, I was reading, I had a pretty political reading diet, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, like when I was like 15 or 16. And I still need to read that. And it, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so all the, all these kinds of uh, yeah, yeah. histories were, were the, the other thing to remember also was like in the early eighties and mid eighties, the sixties had not been historicized yet. So it really, there wasn't a lot of, you couldn't really go to the library and get like books and read read about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You had to uh, pick it up in these like remnant surviving, you know, media forms. Yeah. There's a state or you had to know people who were older who would tell you these things. Yeah, yeah. So all of that was going on. And at this point, I'll give a shout out to also just an element from within my family. You know, I have a cousin who is 12 years older than me. Mm-hmm. So he's like half a generation older than me. And he was a full-blown countercultural type. You know, he's big deadhead. He toured <laughs> following the dead in the 70s. Okay, yeah. He's got a whole kind of countercultural history. And he was always something of a phantasm in my growing up because he was mm-hmm. so much older. Yeah. Then when I was in college, he was in grad school by then. He had done his, you know, he'd worked for the Forest Service and he lived out in the woods and he had done his sort of Oregon bumming around. Uh And he did what 
intellectuals do, which is like go back to grad school. And so he was in grad school when I was in college and he happened to be at U of C, University of Chicago. Okay. And so I was in college in Minnesota and I would drive back to Michigan to visit my folks. Yeah, I'd stay yeah. with my cousin yeah. and he started introducing, you know, he was like, oh, this is Danny, my younger cousin. Oh, he's curious about these things. So he, he kind of took me on this stuff here and there. So I kind of also, even in my family, I had like, kind of like these connections. Signposts. Yeah, yeah. 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 Those are signposts are important. And then, so, I mean, I guess one thing that I'm curious about since you lived through this, but like, you know, since you're in the Midwest, you know, the murder of Vincent Chin, I don't know how that sort of was disseminated during the time of it happening. Cause I, I was born in 1986. So the, that whole event happened before I was even cognizant of life. Right. So I was curious, like, you know, how that sort of entered the discussion, you know, as Asian American, Chinese American growing up in the Midwest, Maybe it wasn't really highly publicized as it seemed to be in, as I'm reading about it, but I'm curious, yeah, how that sort of affected you and made you rethink, you know, this whole idea of identity and being an Asian American in America. Well, I remember following it in the news because it happened in the summer of 1982. Yeah. And I went to school in Detroit, in the northern suburbs of Detroit, in the wealthy suburbs of Detroit. Mm-hmm. This place called Cranbrook, which is yep. kind of, some people know about it, you know, it's famous for the art school. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe know about, and they have this high school and uh, prep school. And that's where I went. And I arrived in the fall of 1982. Mm-hmm. And back then what we did was you subscribe to a newspaper uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. we'd get newspapers, even in the dorms, you get a newspaper Mm-hmm. So I followed that news item as it was unfolding over that year. And, you know, it was one of these things did that that really did not become a big deal until the film came out. Mm. And that was four years later. Mm-hmm. So the event happened. It's in the news. You know, other than reading it in the news media, in the newspapers, I was not a part of any sort of, you know, I was like freshman, right? I was like yeah. young and yeah. I, I was not around like a movement kind of yeah. uh, situation, right? It was only a few years later that I started to, you know, get the consciousness raised to the degree that I could start fighting with my parents. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I take that back. I'm sorry. It was not four years later. It was almost eight years later mm-hmm. that the film came out. So, okay, so here's the deal. And I wrote about this somewhere. I, I'll send you the text. The murder happened in 82. And then... You know, I go through high school, then I go to college, straight to college. And I think it was in the last year of my college life camp, that they, we had a screening on campus of the documentary. Yeah. And I just remember that by that time, you know, it's like, okay, almost eight years later for me, I would uh, had definitely returned to questions of identity and brought them up to kind of a college level inquiry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then here comes this documentary. And in the screening room, it was, you know, it was the Asian America of, the, of its time, which is to say, was not the Asian America of 1968 and mm-hmm. not the Asian America of today. Mm-hmm. So it was like Chinese Americans like me, Korean adoptees, Hmong Americans, mm-hmm. some Viet people. This was in Minnesota. So you had these Southeast Asians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was compositionally 
it's interesting actually to recall that moment. It's interesting to just understand like, you know, Asian America is this thing that's constantly changing. And I think to your point, you know, I can't say I felt much, even though, you know, there was a galvanizing, like the film had this galvanizing effect for sure. Yeah. But we, I mean, I felt like we were still so marginal as just as like a category of people that it was, it was, that had to do with where I was, you know, in the upper Midwest. I did not feel like there was a critical mass. I mean, really, I, I'm only feeling that now, today, like yeah. 2020, you know, <laughs> 2020 and 2021. It's like now it's like, I feel like, oh, there's a critical mass of Asian yeah. Americans that, that yeah. can actually you know, have visibility in all these different fields, yeah. you know, and, and have are well recognized for what they do in all these different ways. Yeah. And now we can actually, you know, say something and yeah. be heard, force ourselves into the conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. Back then it was like, uh, I mean, I remember the film was so great and was so necessary, but, it, but even then it was, it was kind of like, there just weren't enough of us, you know, not to mention, you know, for a lot of us, it, we, you know, I mean, like the, the Vietnamese Americans, you know, like so many of us have like these like hardcore anti-communist parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so it's like, eh, you know, like what, what, how do you, how do we even, you know, how do you handle that? Or how do you, how do we break away from that? Or how do you, how do we, yeah, yeah. That, that, all of that, you know, there's all of that. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, like, it's interesting, you know, this idea of like being heard in 2021, you know, reaching this sort of critical mass and uh, I'm sort of, you know, coming to age after you have sort of entered that dialogue. And so it's just interesting for me to like hear about it and, and get that perspective. And I guess kind of, you know, I, I was reading through a lot of your different writings and I really enjoyed reading through a lot of them. Um, and one of the things I noticed you said, this is something that I've noticed, you know, as, as we talk about these sort of issues of identity, our views are constantly changing. But one thing that you kind of mentioned is sort of like you purposely do not categorize yourself as an Asian American artist as a sort of agency. And so I'm just curious, how did you come to that conclusion? And do you still kind of view that as sort of necessary or important or non-important? And I'm thinking about this also as, you know, we're seeing this sort of resurgence to have a sort of individual claim towards our identity, right? And at least seemingly, at least, you know, different institutions are celebrating, you know, for whatever political reasons, whether it be an institution pretending to feign acceptance or, or actually caring. It's hard to tell sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I think of the younger generation as sort of pushing for that individual claim. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts about that? And if you could talk more about your decisions to not categorize yourself. That's a really good question. Uh, and, and it's actually a, yeah, an opportune moment to revisit it because I have been kind of reassessing that in relation to what's going on now. So um, what, what I'll say is that it was important back then, meaning like, you know, from the mid nineties until about, I would say maybe yesterday, <laughs> before yesterday, kind of yeah. like, I'll, I'll say, I'll say like late, late Obama. Okay. Yeah, sure. okay. yeah. Yeah. So like, second Obama administration. Yeah. Yeah. In that period, it was important for, I felt it was important to resist the ways that people were assigned an yeah. identity yeah. because it correlated to the kind of attention you would get in the art world. Yeah. So it would limit mm. your involvement and your exposure. And, and, you know, I had a lot of political commitments that kind of exceeded the discourse of, of identity. 
So that's why I thought that was important to do. Now, yeah. I, what I would say is by the late Obama period, it became obvious that a kind of white nationalism was you know, on the ascent. And it was a kind of white nationalism that was expressed in an aggression towards Black people. And I think that for me, one of my strategies in that kind of like evasion of being fixed as an Asian American in terms of identity early on in my career was to bring attention to and to analyze the work of Black artists. Mm. Uh, so I would take part in the identity conversation, but yeah. not frontally, you know, in terms of my own position. Right. Right, and right. it was like a kind of oblique, you know, to come at it from the flank side. Yeah, yeah. Right. Really, really kind of like over these last couple of years, starting with the, like sensing the shift in the political conditions, starting, you know, late Obama period. And then through the Trump years, I've started to kind of think about like, you know, what is the best way to concentrate political power in terms of identity? And a couple of things happen. One is that like the way that the whole cultural politics thing is playing out, there is a kind of, I think, a kind of impatience and mm. exhaustion on the part of Black people in terms of controlling their own discourse. Mm -hmm. So even people who are, are friendly and in solidarity and in personal, on personal levels adjacent to Black culture and Black society and Black people like me, it is time for us to not, you know, be at the front of that conversation, you know, um, and it's time for, for Black people to control that discourse of themselves. At the same time, because of the latest form of aggressive racism in this country, which has spilled over from targeting Black people to now targeting Asian people, mm -hmm. it has, I think it has become very important for all people who can, in some sincerely compelling way, claim membership in an Asian American construction to do so and thereby help with that construction. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever disavowed the fact that it is a construction. I mean, see, I think it's even more obvious now than ever because, right, Asian America yeah. is just so hopelessly diverse, right? There's no, yeah, there's yeah. no way to, yeah. to include mm -hmm. it all, you know, in one tight thing. And as we already discussed, it's constantly changing even then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we all got to participate. We all got to participate in making this Asian, you know, what is Asian America? We got to make that a reality now. And I think we're well positioned because there are a lot of people, you know, that we have, we have multiple generations who've been doing this now yeah. um, and we have all the different generational experience. So I think it's become exciting to me in a way that it wasn't like 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, it's also exciting to kind of watch just and think about in the sense that I've always associated, uh, you know, this, I'm not sure if complacency is the right word, but this sort of like, let's just lay our heads down low and just do well in, in school. And then we can kind of, you know, be this sort of model minority. And I, I, I've i been talking to a lot of friends and there's a sort of maybe confusion for uh, for a number of them as far as how to move forward. What is their place? Because they're all of a sudden being forced to to place themselves in a way that they didn't have to. And they're also, like you said, 
we are in an interesting place where there's Asian Americans of all different ethnicities in different places speaking out. And so there's voices being heard. And so there's also people to look at and see what they're doing. And maybe, and also lots of confusion, because I think a lot of these, a lot of people haven't been really asking these questions before. So you feel like that complacency or that maybe just like deep, depoliticized kind yeah. of way of living, like, like you felt like you saw that a lot? I like, like when you were a student and I thought so. Yes, yes. Yeah. Maybe it could also be like, you know, the groups that I was in. I mean, I also did. So I grew up in New Hampshire, didn't see many Asians. And then my first real exposure to, a you know, a vast diverse group of Asians, both international students and on was in college. The Asian Americans I met there, that was sort of the view that I kind of observed them to be. And I've noticed that, you know, I mean, I think it also ties back to what you're talking about as far as your parents um, and a lot of Asian immigrants coming here and this sort of realizing a sort of American dream, right? And then that working for a very certain subset of people leading to the sort of, you know, if you work hard, you can succeed sort of idea. You know, it's interesting. Like I'll kind of go back to my Chinese tutors, you know, the times I had to advertise and, you know, a couple of them I didn't have to advertise because they just like farm me out to their friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, I wanted to learn like the language, the language of, of like theory of Marxism, of, Mm -hmm. you know, these sociological terms, uh, materialist history and stuff like that. And so I would, you know, I, Basically, it was a series of like pretty progressive, open-minded, you know, graduate students from China, at least two of whom were gay, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they, they had like personal reason to want to come to the U.S. for that yeah. reason. And it was really interesting hearing from some of them, their sort of like parallel observations just, you know, just in relation to the, the student, the international students from China. You know, they would complain to me. Or they would they would just describe to me yeah. like yeah you know I don't really fit in with the other graduate students or I don't really you know I don't really yeah. associate with the undergrads they're all econ majors they're yeah, all you yeah. know right yeah. right yeah. and uh, I think there's something to be explored there about like well how this conservatism this like these streaks of conservatism yeah. have been have like jumped you know from mm-hmm. those countries to yeah, you know, these yeah. American these American populations yeah yeah. yeah kind of talking about, you know, the now, I, you know, you released this, I guess, manifesto, the now time Asian America. There were a lot of things that I really liked that you talked about, such as like, you know, how does one think as an Asian American? How does one do as an Asian American? And this was released right before the election. And I was curious, like, you know, what were some of the things that caused you to want to write this manifesto? You wrote this with uh, Megan Ralapati. And, you know, what what was... I know we just briefly mentioned earlier of all these things happening, but what caused you at that particular time to write this uh, manifesto? Well, back in like February, uh, so like more than a year ago, Mm -hmm. uh, Mega had emailed me out of the blue. I didn't know, I knew Mega, uh, you know, back from Chicago, I did that well, but she told me, you know, she just kind of was like, hey, you know, I don't really have anybody I'm in conversation with about yeah. what's going on with uh, politically and how we're going to mobilize the Asian Americans to vote and to vote for whoever the Dem- Democrat is. Yeah. 
And she had been on this whole question of like, you know, how do we talk to our aunties? How do we talk to our parents? How do we talk to the, you know, the first generation, you know, people who, who may have yeah, yeah. This, this conservative streak. And it was over months, all during the, through the pandemic of having this conversation. And we talked about many things we could do, taking out advertisements, you know, like little classified ads yeah, in, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. in the Koreatown, you know, newspaper, <laughs> or, you know, she was talking about this thing her mom gets called India Abroad, you know, it's okay. like weekly or something for Indian Americans, you know. Uh, so we, we thought a lot about those kinds of things. And we finally was like, you know, you know, we kept taking notes. She did a lot of note taking and it was kind of like, well, maybe we should also just try to, you know, hammer out some sort of statement, something that is meant for a general readership and that addresses itself to the upcoming election, but also this larger question of what Trump and the pandemic in combination has made of our current conditions where Asian Americans, for various reasons, good and bad, have become more visible and part of the public conversation. Yeah. Every time Trump was given a a, a press conference, he would kind of bring uh, this question again to the front in in, in talking about the virus. Um, So we had this sort of like continually re-energized demonization of things Chinese, along with you know, I turn on CNN and, you know, there's Sanjay Gupta, uh, you know, interviewing you know, some Chinese American doctor. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah. there's two Asians right there, you know, who are like, you know, all, all up in this conversation about this thing that we're all concerned about, the virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seemed very opportune. So that's kind of how it came about. And the title, you know, the now time. Yeah, yes, site. Do you recognize that? Yeah, I lived in Germany for a year, so I was also trying to learn German, but yeah. Okay, you've lived in a lot of interesting places. This is very, super intriguing. I wish I was interviewing you. <laughs> but you could do yeah, that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's, let's just call this part one. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So there's an artist, an artist friend, great, fantastic artist, an Austrian, a guy named Oliver Ressler. He did a Chavez era documentary called Now Time Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And it was like one of the one of the better and one of the earlier documentaries of the Bolivarian process happening under Chavez in uh, Venezuela. And he took that term, you know, he applied it from that from Benjamin, mm-hmm. put it into the Venezuelan context, mm-hmm. and always remembered that. I thought it was a great use of use for it. So, you know, I, I'm happy now in this interview to have a chance to actually credit Oliver for inspiring our titling of the text and our titling of what, you know, we're going to use as a sort of a name for future initiatives and, right, and right. projects. Right. Uh, because that's it. Now time, it's, you know, it's this opening up of history, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And as artists, we love to quote Benjamin, right? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did you, do you think you got the reception from that article that you wanted? So you mean in in comparison to say like a Koreatown advertising or like a India weekly, or is there a way to measure that? 
Because I wonder who would read it, right? If you were not already politically active, because like it was a great piece, but I also don't know if an you know a Chinese auntie would go read that article. That's right. That's right. I mean, I I think some of the original problem we we were uh, put presenting ourselves is obviously still there, and we need to do something about it. That's where my interest continues to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. I think that I was happy that the text just got to be part of that conversation. If like we were just trying to be like, okay, here's another tile in the mosaic, Yeah, you know, uh, it's like we'll fill one little gap or one little place, one little slot. uh, And it's just another thing for other people to forward or happen upon. You know, I, I had some good responses from people who were outside of the art world, but like you say, who are still kind of in the in the general progressive Asian American demographic. Yeah, I think that a tech like that is just it has to be a different form. That's what Mega and I've talked a lot about. Like it has to be in India abroad. It has to be in you know next to the all the state ads in the newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what those people are reading. That's what my my uncles are reading. That's what my one of my other older cousins who's like 60 something, 61, and who went boating at a you know event in Michigan, you know, with a huge Trump flag. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like I'm not gonna reach him with any of my conventional thing. It's like a bumper sticker, a billboard, you know, something that he sees that's easily digestible and just, you know, something put in front of his face for like five seconds. Yeah. And we got to have a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have an idea for how to expand this dialogue beyond these sort of texts? Like what in your mind, I mean, you've had many years of organizing. I mean, you've done things like mess hall. You've, you were, you did a whole lot of organizing while you were in Chicago, like the Hyde Park community against war and racism. So how do you think moving forward to broaden this conversation of activism among Asian Americans? Well, I mean, I think, I think we did. Definitely need more public media, meaning like, you know, just nothing fancy, you know, billboards, signs, bump stickers, space that can be rented, advertising space, the kind of space that take up in order to just put their message in front of a very, very broad public, you know, in advance of the elections, some conservative group, uh, I forget the name, they must have bought out like a thousand stop bench, you know, bench signs. Yeah. Go on like the backrest. Yeah. 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 And you saw them. I saw them like all over town. It was like, you know, kind of like, like law and order messaging. It was like, are, you know, tired of the chaos, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like, it, they were up for like a month and I just saw them all over town. There must've been hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. So that kind of thing, I, I think a lot of artists, you know, a lot of times we get hung up on form and, and having the having to have the form be new. And it, it means we often it's easy to overlook these kinds of spaces that are in use all the time. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I'm not too good to be availing myself of those spaces. 
So I think that's, that's kind of, you know, one thing we should be doing and it's got to be, you know, short messages, nothing too ironic, nothing too clever, but something memorable and to the point. And I think, you know, they need to be in different languages. They need to be in the languages of, you know, in the mother tongues. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. They need to be in simplified Chinese, you know, they, traditional right? Chinese. They to, yeah, yeah. Korean. They need mm-hmm. they need to be in the languages of, of these older folks. Yeah. So, you know, that's a big project for myself of like, oh, you know, I, that means I need to learn how to what <laughs> you know, what's the equivalent of this, yeah, this, yeah. this, this yeah. phrase or this, you know, point. Especially like, you know, knowing something about Chinese, right? I'm like, well, there's so many interesting ways of saying things in Chinese. There's so many yeah. idioms. There's so many, yeah, you know, there's yeah. so many like, you know, like something gets catchy and, and gets coined and then, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it has a life. So it's like that, that must be true in all these other languages too. So yeah. I can't just use machine translation. Yeah, no just, Google Translate. You know, yeah, yeah. So that's part of it. I mean, I feel like on a, on a celebrity kind of media figure level it's kind of happening it's like yeah. it's like oh padma lakshmi will you know say something on her instagram you know like oh john cho will say something uh, you know like like those yeah. kind of media figures are kind of doing it but yeah. even they have a pretty limited reach in the whole you know broad spectrum of the world yeah yeah how do you see this, you know, the solidarity between the groups sort of happening moving forward? Because I think there's, especially in the Asian American community, it seems like I've been reading a lot about like different ways to move forward. And, you know, but I'm still, you know, thinking about like the long complicated history between Black African American activism with Asian American activism. And I'm curious, since you lived through those, a lot of these different periods, you know, how have you seen that sort of shift as these things are happening to the present day? I think there's, I mean, this may, this may go against what some people are feeling at this, at, at this moment of uh, anti-Asian violence, but I sort of looking back at the whole sort of my personal experience going back years, I feel like the, uh, the, un, the kind of mutual understanding between Asian Americans and African American folks and Asian identity formation and blackness is much better and, and stronger than, than like the mutual understanding is stronger than it, I would say, than it ever has been in my lifetime. I mean, I think there's just way more like your generation and younger, people are just growing up in more mixed, you know, circumstances, which goes a long ways towards, you know, kind of not breaking down all barriers, like at least, at least the barriers are lowered a little bit, you know, they're, yeah. they're lowered enough so that you can actually see a, you know, real person, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and that, that, yeah. that helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I grew up in Michigan where the color line was white and black. Yeah. So, you know, my family had maybe more contact with black people than a lot of Asian Americans did. But, you know, depends. Uh, depends on where people grew up. Yeah. Also, you know, I didn't grow up in a place that had like the so-called ethnic enclave. So we weren't really segregated so mm-hmm. much by ourselves. Yeah. Spatially, there were, there were Asian Americans who fell, you know, on the white side of the class divide and would yeah. live in the white parts of town and those who lived in the black parts of town and who were poorer, you know? Yeah. I mean, speaking of this whole, like, you know, Asian, the Asian spa, right? Like the whole yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta incident, the whole, that violent incident 
kind of you know brought to surface this thing that nobody talks about which is like the asian spas a kind of like a yeah you know retail or retail sort of site of the sex industry yeah and where i grew up in michigan there's there were and still are a lot of these places you know like and there'd be like you know like you know off the interstate off of what i said interstate 75 right next mm-hmm. exit tokyo spa right open 24 hours it's like <laughs> What, what is that? You know, yeah, um, yeah. they were, you know, on the fringes of even my world because, you know, like I would hear about like, oh, one of the chefs at the restaurant. Oh, yeah. He went to the he went to the massage place. There was this there was this like kind of like uh, interclass interaction among all the Asian people where I lived. Yeah. Um, like my parents were the bosses. They were in the bosses class, you know, and my dad was in like the professional class mm-hmm. and, and all of his Chinese American colleagues who were also, you know, like, Oh, young Taiwan educated technical people, you know, engineers, chemists who all had children who then became like me, like, Oh, went to competitive schools and stuff. So there was that. And then there was like, Oh, you know, the waiters, yeah, yeah. the chefs, people who, um, you know, the waiters like live together in mm-hmm. like a four unit house and they're working like six days a week, you know, and what do they do for fun? They gamble and go to the massage place, you know, and and, and so, you know, and I, I was kind of exposed to like sort of the, both of those, you know, sides of the yeah. Chinese American experience there in, in like Saginaw. Yeah. So, but I forget what your question was. <laughs> Oh, oh, just like how, how things have shifted in terms of that, the, the relationships between those two, you know, these two activist groups, you know, there's like Grace Lee Boggs. I'm curious what your interaction with her or maybe was since you lived in proximity in the Detroit area in the Midwest, but also just things are changing. Like you said, the younger generation has this sort of new viewpoint of how things interact and everything's happening all at once, right? You've got the older generation, the, I guess, slightly younger, slightly older generation and the really young generation, and they're all pushing forth these ideas. And yeah, I'm just curious, you know, how you, what you think about these kind of shifts and changes. That was sort of the initial question, but I think you, you answered it in some form. Well, yeah. So there's that class divide within these ethnic yeah, populations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know that the class divide in Korean Korean American society is pretty extreme too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And even even with the, even the spa in Atlanta, right? I think they were owned by one of the, one of the spas was owned by like a Taiwanese businessman, and yeah, it's just like people wanted to simplify the whole thing as this simple, neat black and white sort of situation. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think that the class dynamics is super important here. And it has to be discussed and broken down better it, it, because the movement work, it can only progress so far if, yeah. if, we, if, we, if that's continued to be ignored. Now, the other question of, uh, now I'm remembering, the other yeah. question about like, like solidarity between peoples. Uh, yeah, I, I, I addressed what I thought about the, the Black and Asian relationship. But for myself... Uh, lately, and the collaboration with Mega is part of this, but it kind of goes further back, for the last like probably seven or eight years, I've really tried to think through what Asian, what that construction of Asian American can mean mm-hmm. now that there's a, like a significant South Asian population 
in the United States. Yeah. And it is through people like Mega and another another person of, of um, whose work you should check out. His name is uh, Naeem Mohayaman. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you know his work. He makes he makes films, right? He makes films. He makes yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. I saw I saw um, his. He was he was I think last year or two years ago nominated for a Turner Prize. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing artist. Yeah, and it's through him that I really started to learn about Bangladesh. Uh-huh. And get a little bit more of an understanding of politics of South Asia. And he, and by same token, he's, he's told me, he was like, you know, he's like, you know, Dan, China is so opaque to me. I just, I don't even know where to begin. Right. Yeah. And you think about the Asian subcontinent and you just have these, in addition to all of the other uh-huh. societies and cultures, yeah, yeah. you have these two massive, you know, nation states that don't have a lot of interchange, like surprisingly little, right? I mean, like, right? Like historically, like India is kind of like, you know, it's journey to the West. It's like, you know, it's like from the Chinese yeah, perspective, yeah. it's like really far yeah, away. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like, right? It's on the other side of Shangri-La, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's really hell over there. And India itself is so complex that if you're like trying to engage politically, you don't have to go outside of India to find complexity. You, 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 that in itself is like, yeah, you yeah, know, just yeah. a whole set of political universes. And I've, I've really thought about like, what does this mean for like Asian America? Yeah. If there are people coming from those two streams yeah, yeah. and, you know, in those, in, you know, since, getting to know, you know, like a friend like Naeem was, you know, I really like felt like I, ha- I have a duty to really like understand like South Asian history. Yeah. And I even remember a Korean American friend, musical score for a South Asian American play. He told me, he was like, Dan, you can't understand Asian Americans without understanding the intensity of South Asian experience. And I started to, you know, take that on as like, this whole set of histories, colonial yeah. histories, the traumas of the, of the yeah. you know, partition and all of that. And like, okay, you know, like if there are increasing numbers of people who are Americans by coming from that descent and that narrative, those narratives, how can that, you know, inform like the, this emerging, yeah. you know, present day Asian America, it's not the Asian America of, you know, 19, uh, 80s, 90s. 60s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I, when I saw the Vincent Chin. Who, who yeah. Yeah. Chin. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, that composition is different now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's let's, you know, let's find the advantage. Let's find the yeah. advantage in doing that. Is, do you have hope? Cause sometimes as, I mean, I want to say I have hope, but I'm also like, as the world gets increasingly complex and globalized, I'm like, I don't know. I feel like it's still, we're still a very long way to actually understanding what that means. Because I'm living in China um, and also, like I said, I'm talking to my, you know, the different Asian American communities that I'm part of from college. And I'm like, I'm just reading the news. And I'm like, we're so far off, right? Even though the, all this thing's happening. But um, yeah, I'm just curious what, what you think about that. You, 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 you may have, this may strike you as a completely absurd thing to say, given that you are living in China right now, but I have hope for Asia. Hmm, Why, why, why is that? (laughs) I feel like there's so much talent and and potential innovation Hmm. and a weird kind of open-mindedness, hmm. a kind of like open-mindedness that that comes from not having 
the kinds of attachments that Americans do and American mm. society does mm. that will allow Asian societies to negotiate the future challenges better. Mm. I think my hope for the U.S. is is uh, a lot lower. Um, mm. You know, mm. I think that we have this opportunity now, like we've been given a four-year like respite from like aggressive white nationalism that has the power of the state um, yeah. on their side. But it may, if we don't do all we can now yeah. and we do it in, the, and we, if we don't do it in the right ways that the, these four years are going to be an, an, you know, an aberration. Yeah. 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 And I think the right wing is already thinking of it that way. So, you know, I'm really worried about this yeah. country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it'd be great to continue this in some form and yeah. uh, maybe uh, just maybe just uh, call it quits for this time around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I just put on the agenda. I mean, I think Grace Lee Boggs, of course, is an incredibly fascinating uh, figure to discuss yeah. and, to, you know, to tell you what I think of her. OK, <laughs> but uh uh, we should do this again and I should, I should, you know, I should, you know, maybe prepare some questions for you because I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. super curious now about all of those things about Korea, about Germany and, you know, of course your situation in China. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I guess signing off, I'm curious, you know, where can people find you online? Um, but is there anything else that's happening that you want to promote for stuff? Uh, you know, I'm working on, I mean, this is much further off, but uh, we've got a book project uh, in uh -huh. the works, but that's not until uh, 2022. Um, okay. But we're, 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 we're already kind of in the thick of uh, working on that. So there's some sort of like slightly longer term kinds of things going on. You can find me online consistently at my own website, Dan S. Wong, D-A-N-S-W-A-N-G, dot xyz so there's xyz that. uh and then xyz xyz and then my instagram which is uh that's that's sort of the live journal that's where you'll see the okay. the, the things that i'm eating listening to making reading yeah. that kind of thing and that is at type rounds 1968 type underscore so type underscore rounds r-o-u-n-d-s underscore 1968 the year that i was born mm -hmm. uh in between the death dates of mlk and rfk my birthday is coming up oh wow uh, all right well yeah thanks so much dan let's you know call it for now and we'll we'll continue this on round two sounds good all right thank you thank you so much dan take it easy bye Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, 
Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.